As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Right, we're just a few weeks away from our first ever live edition of the Race F1 podcast on February 12th. So far, we've got a great venue, King's Place in London as part of Pod Live. We've got me to host, Scott Mitchell-Malm to give lengthy answers, and a very special guest in Ted Kravitz. So Ted, we've got to work out what we're going to talk about. What's there to look forward to in 2023 that we can get into in the live show, do you think? Let me start by telling you a story about Murray Walker. There you go. Good start. Um, he always used to say at the beginning of a season, you know, Formula One has an amazing ability of reinventing itself year by year. And I used to think it's a funny thing to say, but you know, the more I think about it, the more he's right. And even though we don't have new cars this year, right, slightly different with the race, bright height, blah, blah, new tyres, we do have so many other new things that are worth talking about. We've got new drivers, we've got rookies, it's more than one, a couple of rookies, and we've got new team bosses. That's what I'm all also looking forward to to seeing how that's all going to work and then of course we've got the small matter of the world championship will we be at the end of 2023 talking about max verstappen a three-time world champion there's loads of stuff to look forward to this season that's going to fill about 40 minutes of our 75 minutes scott can your song and dance routine fill the rest um it probably could if you would um if you would unshackle me and just let me you know have have full uh, creative license on it Part of it for me that I think we can get into really nicely is the subject of rivalries, old and new, because I would like to think we're going to see some familiar fights in 2023, but we're also going to see some new ones as well. I'm really optimistic about that. So I think that's a good subject for us to get into. And obviously it won't just be us. Maybe we'll uh, have a few interesting insights from our audience as well. Well, this is great. The running order is coming together very, very well. I think we've got to have some kind of audience interaction. We'll definitely have a few questions. We'll have a few bits of feedback from the audience. Ted, do you know anyone who's handy with a microphone and who's good at doing a bit of broadcasting moving around? Because we could do with someone who could go out among the people. Well, what are we? February the 12th. Is it going to be warm enough for shorts? Yes, of course it'll be warm enough for shorts. Bring my pink shirt and my shorts on. I'll get down there with a microphone. And of course, I think we should also hang around a bit at the end, say hello to a few people. Will there be the chance, Ted, to give a few autographs? Definitely. Does anyone actually ask for autographs anymore? But um, yeah, no, we can uh, can go and meet everybody and say hello. 
yeah, it's going to be great. All part of Sport Pod Live, live podcast festival. We're there on February the 12th. That's a Sunday. Nice early afternoon slot. So if you're an F1 fan, it's just going to be a great event to come to. Hopefully we've got so much to talk about. We're going to struggle to fit it all in. So to get your tickets, head to sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. That's sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. Get your tickets and we will see you there. The Athletic. The race is on, and the Cadillac entry bid has stirred up a hornet's nest with the FIA and F1 at odds over the process and suitability of the mooted Andretti team. But why can't everyone just get along, and who really has the final say on whether a team is allowed in? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those controversial questions and many more are Mark Hughes and Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Scott, this is great, isn't it? New Year, massive political storm, that's what everyone loves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love the... Uh... I love the why can't everybody just get along um, because that just sort of conjures into my mind the image of just like, oh, won't somebody please think of the poor, massively rich people running Formula One teams and making money off of Formula One, which is, uh, I think, uh, I, I suspect actually isn't a, a great deal removed from how some people looking at this kind of saga actually feel about it because I get why this probably seems really tiresome and frustrating for fans who just want sensible governance of the championship um don't mind a little bit of greed and self-interest because ultimately these are massive massive empires that are being built um but just don't want rampant self-interest to 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 destroy everything because everybody loves new teams and everybody wants to see new faces and new um ideas on the grid so i i can totally appreciate that to some people this isn't a particularly fun uh fun state of affairs but at the same time mark it's Classic F1 stuff, isn't it? FIA versus F1 slash the teams. Memories of the old Visa Fokker War of the past. So th- this is this is classic F1. People say they like the historic stuff. So this is the same old story coming around again in a new form, isn't it? Yeah, it is to an extent. It's more of the same. F1 can't remain like in a, in a stasis in a, in a happy equilibrium. It, it just can't by nature. And it's too competitive for that. And um, yeah, so now that the 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 money is ballooned in, in the in the Liberty era and the Netflix era, and the value of the teams is, is increased uh, as as a result. So this this is all part of that. This is all this this current um, controversy about whether somebody can come in is um, <laughs> is all part of that. Yeah, yeah. There is a lot going on here obviously we've previously done podcasts about the entry process and about the Andretti GM Cadillac bid but this is a little bit more about the wider battle that's going on that this bid is part of but far from the full story of so Scott let's start off with FI President Mohammed Ben Salem's tweet earlier this week he said it is surprising that there has been some adverse reaction to the Cadillac and Andretti news the FIA has accepted the entries of smaller successful organizations in recent years we should be encouraging prospective F1 entries from global manufacturers like GM and thoroughbred racers like Andretti and others interest from teams in grown markets adds diversity and broadens F1's appeal so the obvious question arising from that is what exactly is the adverse reaction uh, it's a very good question, and it's one of the reasons why um, this comment from Mohammed Ben Salayem has been 
taken in a surprising way from people within Formula One because publicly there hasn't been a reaction. Um, there, w- there was the F1 statement that coincided with the Andretti Cadillac news, which was definitely lukewarm at best. Um, that basically didn't even acknowledge Andretti and Cadillac, really. It just said there are other conversations happening. Some are more private than others. Um, we need to make sure that the championship's not undermined. It was the gist of the of the statement. And there was no coverage that F1 devoted to Andretti and Cadillac. So that was definitely lukewarm. Um, but the teams didn't say anything in public. And outwardly, the fan reaction to it, that certainly that I've seen, I don't know about you two, but I, I've just seen almost universal positivity around the idea from the fans. So obviously... This reaction has come privately. It is from feedback that either the president or his team have got from from different teams and stakeholders in in Formula One, and uh, that have that has indicated opposition to Andretti Cadillac. They've not received it as warmly as I'm sure Andretti would have wanted, and as it turns out, the FIA president would have wanted. So that that's sort of the that's sort of the foundation for it. Behind the scenes, there's clearly some needle. Ben Soleim was, I think, hoping that everyone would join in and champion the idea of a General Motors-supported Andretti bid, and that hasn't happened. So I think that's where the adverse reaction came from. We just haven't seen it, not directly anyway. Yeah, it's very, very clear that Mohamed Ben Soleim has been quite provocative with his public statements, and Andretti is all part of that. So that points us a little bit to what's going on behind the scenes. There's actually quite a big disconnect between what you mentioned there, the public perception, of course, on paper, this Andretti GM Cadillac bid sounds great and that would be good for F1 and an extra strong, potentially good team with manufacturer backing is great news. But there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, which is the, the, the big issue. And Mark, we've touched on the politics of this in a previous podcast briefly, but it is this FIA versus F1 battle, isn't it? So I guess the fundamental question is, who actually does decide on the entries for Formula One? Who decides who is allowed in? Well, in a routine matter, it would be the FIA will have the ultimate sign-off, but um, as Scott has discovered in his uh, you know, in his investigations behind the, the scenes, that um, th- there, is a, there is a veto uh, that, that FOM could use. So it, it, ha- it has to get the agreement of both the FIA and FOM to get across the line. Um, even though the FIA is the ultimate authority in it, that there is this in in this case, this specific case of a new team joining, because it has such commercial ramifications, FOM can overrule the and, and say no, we 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 we, do, we don't approve of it, and it needs both. So um, yeah, the FIA has announced the expression of interest process, which will be the first official step playing out over the next few months. Um, form takes inputs from the teams, the existing teams. It considers any points made by them in giving its approval or disapproval after seeing the, the full details, the books, if you like. Not the, te- the teams don't see the books, but form does. Um, the real nitty-gritty of the team's financial back and its technical resources, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, form is, the, of course, the management branch of Liberty Media, and Liberty Media, in this case, would have a potentially very important part to play in whether the the loose condition of bringing more value to the sport than it takes out through the dilution of each individual team's share is met Um, because to convert the involvement of an American team with a big American brand behind it would surely involve Liberty leveraging that and pushing hard to get sponsorship deals off the back of that for F1 as a whole, Uh, you know, not not sponsorship for individual teams, but F1 as a whole. Um, 
would Liberty be inclined to do that? So it's in a tricky position potentially because it's representing the teams and taking their input, but also if this could be made to work and you could get these two iconic American brands into F1 bringing new drivers through um, in the USA with a key market, of course, for Liberty. But for that to happen, it has to be convinced that the team would be credible enough, competitive enough, not to simply be running at the back and, and just taking their share of the income away from existing teams and devaluing the existing teams in the process. So where this becomes really difficult is, obviously, speaking about the wider perception of fans, fans want there to be at least a way in, a possible way into F1. When Andretti have talked in the past about wanting to come in, there have been comments about, well, there's no entry process open. The starting point for this latest phase of stuff was Ben Sulliam saying he wanted to at least create a process for expressions of interest being opened in F1. It's hard to argue with that in itself, Scott, isn't it? Because there should at least be some vaguely transparent process where people can at least propose their candidacy. Otherwise, it does come across as a closed-door thing. So I think that element of, of what Ben Sulliam and the FIA are doing is actually a reasonable one. The questions are then about what follows from that. No, you're you're absolutely right, and I and I, I'm I'm really pleased that Ben Salem has been proactive on it and, and started that process because I think when we've talked about new teams before, we've probably talked about the fact that how can you judge a team or a project or how can you really evaluate whether it's worth expanding the grid or not if you don't actually hear properly what these prospective new teams have to say and offer because. For the last two years, there could have been two or three amazing projects out there of serious interest that never got off the ground because um, because the door was perceived to be closed. The flip side of that is that there is, b- before we get to a point of calling for expressions of interest, there are conversations that take place behind the scenes. And I think we can be pretty confident that the president would not have made his initial statement and started the ball rolling on the process opening had he not had a lot of conversations with the likes of Michael Andretti and known that this was afoot. It's not a coincidence that the Andretti Cadillac bid was announced or the plan for the bid was announced just a few days after Ben Salayem's original tweet. Um, And we know that Michael Andretti name-checked the president as well in in basically his opening statement in that that press conference. So that... There's stuff that happens there on on the FIA side. There's also conversations that happen on the F1 side because there is a sort of informal process there as well where teams are, or prospective teams, interested parties, write to Formula One and they say, we're kind of interested in scoping out some kind of involvement. Can we have some conversations? And then these conversations take place behind the scenes. And this sort of feeds into what we're all talking about with this F1 FIA power struggle because in that situation, you have effectively two different channels you could explore to to scope out the possibility of getting an entry into Formula One. You could do what Andretti's done, which seem or seems to have done, which is prioritise the FIA route, or you can go down the FOM route, the, 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 the F1 route, the commercial rights holder route. So slightly different approaches. It muddies the water a little bit. Who are you trying to buddy up to? Who actually has the say? Who makes the final decision? It, it is a joint decision. It's F1 and the FIA. Once we go beyond 10 teams, which we will be doing if we have an 11th or a 12th or whatever, the commercial rights holder has a say. That's enshrined in the Concord Agreement. So you can't just cut out one party or the other. It's the FIA that launches this process. It's F1 that controls the commercial rights and the agreements that you have to sign up to to be part of the championship. So it's very much a 
it's a symbiotic relationship, but the um, the symbiote's fighting at the moment, so you don't. It's just not cohesive, and that is because there is this sort of slightly messier F one FIA situation in the background. That's actually pretty bad for the perception of Formula One, I think, because you should be able to point to processes and things that you'd be measured against to be allowed in. And it does look a little bit like on F1's side, and I mean FOM and the teams, that they're almost moving goalposts to people. And I think there's some very legitimate question marks that we'll get onto later. But just in that wider perception, we're at a time when F1's growing, trying to embrace the USA, etc., increasing engagement, etc. And time and again, in all sorts of areas, we have this problem with things not being especially transparent. So I do think that's unhelpful. But I think both sides need to try and get to the end of this process with something in place that's a little bit more clear and obvious to everyone on the outside. Because, Mark, it isn't great, is it? Because if you're a prospective new F1 team owner, obviously you're sitting there on your your multi-billions that you've got on your, your bank account and thinking, oh, I quite fancy F1. And you see all this going on, you might be really credible, but be quite put off if you're not somebody who's perhaps steeped in in motorsport as a, a potential investor. And so there is a kind of outreach issue here as well. There is. It's not a good look. Um, and it's it's um, not a good look for the the fans who, as you said in your introduction, would love to see, you know, another team and more drivers and more cars on the grid. Um, but it is it is essential that it, we get it right. And, and, and I think the... The point about moving the goalposts—it's it, it, sort of it, the, the goalposts are sort of being moved, but it, it's inevitable because the sport is in a, a period of expansion. Um, so the, the goalposts are being moved by the commercial environment in which the, the sport is is at the moment. So um, this is happening at a t- this this attempt at the new team coming in or new teams coming in is happening at a time when the the the, the value of the sport itself is is ramping up because its popularity is increasing so quickly so it is it's a very tricky situation um but i i don't think it's one that you could necessarily have foreseen and legislated for yeah i think that is a fair point because f1's quite volatile in so far as We've got things like the cost cap coming in, obviously the Concorde a few years ago, the way the regs are working, etc. We are in a period where the teams need to settle down. So I think it makes sense for there to be a certain element of caution in terms of letting new teams in, but it does look a little bit all over the place. But we should also separate the kind of optics in the wider world from what's actually going on in this individual battle. And there's uh, there's all sorts of problems in all sorts of different areas. But I think one thing we have to underline, Scott, is people will argue well, the FI is the regulator, so just sign up, pay an entry fee, and you're allowed in. And that's the kind of old school uh, way of looking at it. But that's very clearly not going to work, isn't it? That would actually undermine and potentially destroy the whole improved financial basis on which F1's operating, wouldn't it? Yeah, so to to really understand why F1 wants to protect this, because that's, I think, a valid thing to be confused about we, we all understand that the teams have vested interests right but if you were looking at it on the surface you would think well an 11th team coming in or a 12th team coming in comes out of the f1 team's share of the revenue the prize fund that is formed from half of f1's revenues for the year it doesn't hurt f1 
So why would it, why wouldn't F1 want an 11th or a 12th team to cash in on and market and potentially have all these new sponsors and and and, and all of this? It's because F1 sees a lot of um, or sorry, F1 puts a lot of significance of on the current teams for the growth in the last two or three years. So you have to buy into the idea that the franchise model, and I say it a lot on the use that phrase a lot on the podcast and in writing and I, and I don't really I don't really like it because it sounds it just it sounds a bit stupid but it is the best way to describe it because it comes from that US sporting concept and it is the idea of creating specific franchises that are permanent and and that is a, obviously a very big shift away from the comings and goings of F1 teams that we are so used to over the championship's history. So you have to buy into the fact that the franchise model's here and it is an important part of Formula One's growth. The, the idea is that you um, you secure you secure the existing teams, you have a slightly better revenue distribution model, which is what the 2020 Concord Agreement that kicks in for 21 to 25 enshrined, so that the teams, are they're more secure, they've got slightly more funding, you have all the other stuff going on in the background so that competitively it's more even. And then over time, these 10 teams just get more and more competitive because they're they're getting a bit more in. They're having to spend less to be successful because there's a limit on what everyone can spend. That lifts the competition. That lifts the quality of the championship. And everyone grows with that. that that's the sort of basic logic of that. And over the last two or three years, especially having ridden out the COVID pandemic, F1 believes that the 10 existing teams have played an absolutely key role in what I think can be termed as a boom for F1 if you compare it pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, especially with the growth that we've seen in, in the United States. So for as far as F1's concerned, you do you do just have to protect the existing value of the, of the 10 teams and then it becomes risk and reward. There is definitely reward, potential reward, in adding an 11th or 12th team to the grid. But what are you risking? And if the risk is perceived to be high enough that you would undermine those teams that are so important to you and their potential prosperity, I don't see them taking that risk. And it's very conservative and it's a bit boring and it isn't the F1 that a lot of people grew up loving. But is it is it the foundation for a much more stable championship and therefore theoretically long-term successful championship? There is at least a good argument for that. It's not black and white, but I can see where the logic comes from at least. Well, given we've come out of an era where the previous commercial agreements governing F1 were strangling a lot of the teams and making it less competitive and letting the big few teams break away and kind of ossified as that, it is a good step forward. And the argument you make there is, is very strong. For me, it's all about where you set that bar. It's got to be a high bar, but it's not going to be an impossible bar. And I think, as a collective, the teams will be minded to tend towards making it an impossible bar. And that's a risk because you do create the potential for stagnation and missing out on growth opportunities. So it's a fine line to be struck. I think the principle that there needs to be that point where a team qualifies that's set very, very high that means it must not be impossible. I think that's at the heart of the debate that's going on here. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Scott, let's come back a little bit to Andretti itself, because it does seem that one of the concerns among the teams and F1 itself is whether this Andretti Cadillac bid offers as much as it seems to. We were very positive about it on our podcast because on paper, the the big picture ingredients as presented are very good. So why isn't this combination of one of the biggest names in American racing and General Motors to create an American team that's using the Cadillac brand that's part of a global marketing push doing that? Well, the interest in General Motors is actually well well received by Formula One. And I think the, I think the teams as well. I think it... Broadly speaking, on the surface, it has been taken as Michael Andretti was challenged to find a way to make his entry more appealing and has gone away and courted a massive, massive manufacturer, the biggest car company in the, in the United States, one of the biggest in the world, to do that. So that that side of things I don't think is questioned. What is questioned is whether it really is as good as it looks on the surface or what it seems to be on the surface. So first of all, there, and this is something that Michael Andretti has subsequently addressed in an interview with Forbes, I think it was. Um, there is a concern that it's just a badging exercise, that actually it's General Motors giving Andretti the blessing to slap Cadillac stickers on their car, call it a Cadillac, and then General Motors gets an Alfa Romeo Sauber style sponsorship deal where it's perceived to be in Formula One, gets a lot of exposure and benefits as off the back of that, but doesn't actually contribute that much to it. And the threat there is there is that, or the perception there is that it risks the competitiveness of the Andretti Cadillac entry, that it wouldn't, that they might underestimate F1, that they wouldn't actually have the backing of an OEM, and also that this OEM, General Motors, wouldn't because it's not its team, wouldn't be committing, whether it's in terms of technology, in terms of the running of the team, whether it's uh, marketing, activation, whatever, just would not be putting the money into F1 that the likes of a Mercedes, a Ferrari, even a Red Bull or Renault, whoever, right? So that, that, is, one of the, that is one of the big concerns. Um, Andretti says that's nonsense. It's not a badging exercise. Um, that it will be a partnership with Cadillac, and even suggested that their engine plan, which will be to to run a Renault, he's even suggested that for 2026 and the new power unit, that actually Cadillac could have some input in, um, I guess, specking some parts of the 2026 Renault. And Andretti's point being that therefore there would therefore be intellectual property within the engine that they use in 26, Cadillac intellectual property, and therefore it isn't just a badging exercise. Personally, I would be stunned if Renault allows a brand new manufacturer it has no relationship with to tinker with its power unit plans for 2026, but that's a separate argument for for another day. So the crux of it is, how much of this is actually General Motors and how much of it is Andretti? And this isn't me saying this, I, I want to stress this, this is the team perception, how much of it is Andretti thinking he's found a way 
to get his team on the grid under the illusion of it being being a work steal. That's a very, very cynical way of looking at it. But it's based on two things. It's First of all, it's based on Andretti's conduct over the last 18 months from the way he talked about the Sauber deal and the way the Sauber deal fell through when he tried to buy that organisation in late 2021 to things like in Miami last year, going around the paddock, trying to get teams to sign a document supporting an Andretti Global entry that only McLaren and Alpine actually ended up signing. It, so stuff like that isn't... And the fact that he's not he's not working in collaboration with the existing teams, there's just a lot of putting noses out of joints um, rather than working collaboratively with them to present his proposal. One suggestion I've heard is that he should go to the F1 Commission, for example, and say, look, can I come to you guys? I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll pitch it properly you can see all all of the information and this ties into the second part of this which is that the teams don't know there are no specific details about this Andretti Cadillac bid they don't know whether or not for example Andretti's actually paying General Motors to get the use of the Cadillac name I suspect that isn't the case but that's an example that I've been been given how much of it is actually going to be General Motors or Cadillac technology how much funding are they going to put into it and this is all information that will eventually come out in the event of an, a formal bid being lodged. But the teams will never see that because that will be private and confidential with the FIA and, and possibly F1 as well. So the teams are basically arguing that we don't have any of the details. So we're just going to hammer these people as much as possible because we want that detail to come out now. So we actually know about it. So there's a huge amount of scepticism. And that is broadly the reason for it. Some of this is quite easily solved if all is as it seems. If Andretti is not a privateer operation dressed up in a works jacket to try and make it look like something it isn't, then they can go to the 10 teams. And I'm disappointed that Andretti hasn't really done this and seems to be siding entirely with the FIA to force this through. He should be getting those 10 teams on side because if you sit down with Toto Wolf or any of the team bosses, whoever, and say, right, okay, here's what's happening. Cadillacs or GM is doing this technically, or this is what the ownership state will be. This is their promotional and activation plan. You can answer a lot of those questions. And it's a little bit disappointing that that's not happened. But at the same time, I would say when you don't have a formal process in place, as F1 doesn't, then it becomes a little bit harder to justify that because they can appeal to speak to the F one commission but as there's not an official way of doing it yeah there's behind the scenes ways of doing it but again that's where the uh, the, the optics uh, come into it but mark this is a very kind of difficult situation to be in because it's obvious the teams don't really know so they're going on very very limited information and clearly they need that information so it's it's a very very information poor debate that's going on yeah, and the the critical thing that um, any new team wanting to come in is going to have to do is to convince both both parties in, in terms of the regulatory and then the commercial rights holder um, that, that there is a net benefit. And you can't do that without engaging with both sides properly and without um, revealing details of your plans. So... It's it's a tricky one because one of the key one of the the, the 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 key demands is that it should be that the team is bringing more to F one than than the value it is taking out of it from each individual team by the dilution, um, 
how do you assess that? How do you measure that? Um, you know, what what way is there of saying we can put a number on how much more engagement our involvement will bring Formula One as a whole? Um, and that, even even if you were as um, open as you possibly could be, that's a very um, nebulous number, isn't it? So it is a very, very difficult uh, discussion, um, just in, by, by its nature. Um, you, you've got to sort of um, balance on the edge of, 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 of a not being a close shop, of a not being you know, anti-competitive, um, but still to, to not damage the existing model. And uh, information is absolutely crucial for that. And it's not necessarily information that is even possible to, uh, in, in terms of future income, uh, that it's, it's possible to measure. Yeah, it's effectively an investment, isn't it, in potential future returns, which can only ever be projected. And it is a lot of intangible things that are, that are impossible to measure in advance, certainly. And even once everything's happened, it's difficult to ascribe cause and effect there. But Mark, you mentioned the financial side, but there is this $200 million anti-dilution fee for a new team coming in that's enshrined in the Concord Agreement. Suggestion now seems to be this isn't enough. So do the teams have any basis for that? Or is it just desperation not to let everyone else have a slice of the pie and is that 200 million dollar payment enough to paper over the the kind of gap between letting them in and the extra value that's added paying off i think it's it's a valid concern it is it, you know the that dilution fund of 200 million which is in a concord agreement running to the end of 25 was when it was set that that was about the the value of of a of team of a you know an independent team and and Williams was sold for 180 million. So the idea was that if you if you front up 200 million, you weren't going to be able to just get the entry and sell it on for a big profit. But since then, Audi, of course, has bought Sauber for reported 600 million. So you know, working on those figures, yes, it would now in theory be possible to flip it. That's one point. Uh, the second is that this 200 million is just a one-off payment, and divided between the 10 other teams, it doesn't really put them ahead of where they were for very long. Initially it does, but after three or four years, depending on the future income, they're going to be behind where they are now. So, um, yeah, the, the, the third, the, the, the teams are reluctant to hand a slice of their income over to a rival, but in, in the process, dev, devalue the market value of, the, of, of their own teams. So, no, that that is a, a, a genuine, I think, um, a point of concern, and I think it's valid. Well, Scott, effectively, this is asking the 10 teams to invest in future growth of Formula One, isn't it, by letting another team in. You've done a little bit of digging around and a bit of number crunching to work out. So what actually is being asked of the teams in terms of each one's effective individual investment through what they're giving up? Hmm. Yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a hard, hard one to, to quantify specifically. But if we just work off the basis of the 2021 numbers, because um, we're still waiting to... to we will get them soon, but we're still waiting for the final final quarter numbers from 2022 and, and the full year for last season. So 2021, the revenue for Formula One was just over $2 billion and 50% of that went to, to teams. So team payments were, were just, just, over, just over $1 billion. And the way it works under the new Concord Agreement is that you have a, you still have a special payment for Ferrari. And then there is um, 
there are some success, historical success-based payments that go to a few teams, Mercedes, Red Bull, Williams, um, and McLaren and Ferrari again, I think, are the teams eligible for that. That's based on whether you've won any titles or finished in the top three in the last 10 years. And I think this takes up about 25% of the t- of the prize fund. The rest of that, so the remaining 75%, I think, um, is the, the prize fund that is shared between the teams based on their constructors' position. So... $750 million, um, which means, and it isn't distributed, it's not distributed equally. I want to stress that. So you get 14%, I think, if you win the championship, down to 6% if you finish last in the championship at the moment. But let's say the team prize fund in 2021 was $750 million, just so that we've got a number to work with. Across 10 teams, it's an average of $75 million, right? That, regardless of whether the, the team individual teams are slightly above or, or, or below that number. So let's say you're working with about $75 million per team. When you have an 11th team come in, obviously there's a percentage there that gets taken away from that, which will be, at the very least, a few million dollars. I think it's between, per position, depending on where you finish in the championship, I think you'd lose between $4.5 and $10.5 million in 2021. But... So 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 just using that, you get your, your share of the anti-dilution fund as it is now, twenty million, you get you'll get twenty million dollars. So if you only lose six or seven million, actually that's okay. That's three years worth of coverage. And the hope would be that F1 grows enough in this time that from that point onwards you'd actually be you'd get a smaller slice, but it'd be of a much bigger pie. So it would balance itself out long term. But the problem is with that 200 million figure and the 20 million that each of the 10 teams would get is that revenue for F1 actually increased massively in 2022. And the expectation is that it will keep increasing. As of the third quarter last year, F1 had recorded an extra half a billion in revenue compared to 2021. So that's a really big chunk that would go to the teams, right, as extra. So actually, the teams now think that your $20 million that you get as part of the current anti-dilution fund barely covers you for two seasons. And their argument is, is that unless an absolutely mega entry comes in that is a shoo-in to add more value, obviously the teams and F1 would have to work hard to tap into that. You're not going to get, you're, you're just not going to get a team that actually covers that. Whereas if you had a fund of 500 600 million dollars which is what they're talking about you actually get a longer run at that you've got five six maybe even seven years of of protection so that's sort of broadly how that works i don't know if i did a very good job of explaining that and make it make sense numbers are not my forte but it is it is a complicated issue because obviously the the percentage of the revenue share shifts year to year it isn't a fixed number that we're working with all we can say is that it is it's several million a year that the teams are looking to cover. Well, that does make very clear the magnitude of the sums involved and what extra value a new team needs to bring to justify it. And obviously the teams, they're all individual business entities in themselves, so they have to act to an extent in their own financial interest. So it's all about that balance between how much they're going to lose and how much they could potentially gain. Can you get a slightly smaller slice of a bigger pot? And that model can work quite well. The one that's always talked about is the NFL model, whereby the way they set up some years ago, or rather they modified the way that they were set up some years ago, 
exponentially increase the size of the pie. So even though certain entities were getting a smaller chunk of it, it was still worth vastly more. And those are sporting franchises that are worth vast sums of money. So if they'd ossified and just had that old structure in place, it wouldn't have got as big as it would have done. So that's why there's this this sort of push and pull in terms of new competitors and that potential growth. Your reference to NFL has just reminded me of a, of something that's worth adding because this is something that I've had several people suggest to me as an argument for massively increasing the anti-dilution fund, which I think needs a slightly sexier name because it's, it's a bit boring to have to keep saying it. Um, the argument is, and some people will dislike this because it's another US sporting comparison, but you mentioned NFL, but I've had the the NHL, the National Hockey League, and MLS, Major League Soccer, presented to me as examples as well of why F1 should increase the, the, the cost quite significantly of expanding the grid. So in MLS, it is called, in the US, it tends to be referred to as expansion fees. And in MLS, the most recent one, I think that was awarded to not someone that isn't David Beckham and therefore just gets everything on a silver platter in a preferential way, was I think $350 million um, for their latest team. Um, so that's obviously more than the $200 million that you would need to pay as an expansion fee effectively in, in, in F1. And in NHL, I think it was massive. It was like $650 million. So, and and just to put it into context, that the MLS is not as successful as something like the NHL or or or, or F1. Um, MLS is constantly expanding to basically support itself and to try and make sure that it becomes sustainable just by having loads of teams in it. Effectively, that's a slightly simplistic way of looking at it. But the point is, I, there was a perception that F1 was massively underselling the teams by having the the, the dilution fund so low. So they think that a much higher expansion fee would actually put it in line with the kinds of massive sports that in the US, for example, are better protected with this kind of arrangement. But obviously, once again, to come back to a point I made very early on, you have to buy into the so-called franchise model to to agree with that logic. Yeah, it's important to prevent external entities coming in saying, oh, we want an easy piece of the action, coming in just trying to create a mediocre team and just try and work in that way because if you run at quite a low a low level the sort of start and park the old nascar model almost kind of works there you don't want that you also don't want people coming in setting up a team then aiming just to sell it for a massive profit really really quickly so there maybe need to be to be there maybe need to be some mechanisms in place to prevent that sort of thing happening but at the same time it is a sporting competition and there does need to be a way in so a lot of what we talked about there is financial. And that's all important because the financial health of the teams is what should hopefully in the long term with the cost cap and the way the regs are create a much more competitive F1, potentially the most competitive F1 throughout the field that has ever been seen. And that's something everyone can enjoy. But fear of undermining that shouldn't make it impossible for something new to come in. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. 
All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Mark, one interesting aspect of this is the timeline, because we're assuming Andretti's unlikely to be in F1 much before 2026. I guess 2025 is possible, but 2025 is the last year of the current Concorde. So is this part of the opening salvos and negotiations for that, with the FIA trying to assert itself, the teams and F1 itself trying to say, no, we're, we're in charge of this? This has got to feed into the Concorde, hasn't it, particularly with talk about changing anti-dilution fees, etc.? Yes, and if the, um, the the new team coming in has to agree to the terms of the twenty six uh, Concorde, the the pressure because of the expansion of the sport has surely got to be that that uh, dilution fund goes up, not down. Or it's even I've heard it being discussed elsewhere; it'll be deleted. But there's no logic to that at all. It, 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 that's not. That's not the way gravity is pulling it. It's um, it's going up, if anything. So um, yeah, that that that's creates a within within the backdrop of the FIA um, Formula One sort of niggle and then sort of it, it's not a battle for control, but there is definitely a uh, you know a, there is some element of, of each side pushing against the other in terms of its authority. Um, that that's very much part of of that, and you know the if if you're if the market conditions are pushing up the uh, the the value of what you have to come up with to enter, um, that's by definition giving more power to the Formula One part of the the partnership, and um, if it's got a veto and so uh FIA will be a little bit un- uneasy about that um and it's it might well explain why the president of the FIA is ostensibly um so in favor of 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 the Andretti bid because it's 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 pulling pulling the balance of power towards um, the the governing body rather than the, rather than the commercial rights holder but um i think it, it it's difficult because it is so commercially successful at the moment it's difficult not to see formula one's power actually increasing as the commercial rights holder over the, the governing body and there is this tension between fi and f1 that's long running in terms of the financial side obviously mohammed ben Suleyan 
is on the record of talking about the financial state of, of the FIA. So there's also a desire there to up its income and make sure it's it's got more stability. Obviously, the FIA once held the commercial rights to Formula One, but uh, basically <laughs> sold them off uh, some time ago. So this has made it quite dependent on F1 in terms of uh, in terms of the income required, etc. So that's also part of the uh, the landscape and part of those Concord discussions. So. There's a lot of dimensions to this that expand far beyond just the suitable candidacy of, of one prospective team. But Scott, as mentioned, I was surprised to hear that Michael Andretti hasn't put in a bit more effort with the F1 side and the team side. It's abundantly clear the FIA is on board and that Andretti FIA block is quite strong. Do you think Michael Andretti's made a misstep here in aligning so firmly with the FIA in quite a polarised debate because it just risks this whole entry becoming a political football in this wider battle and actually that's happened to prospective new teams in the past so (laughs) there are examples of this happening the 2010 intake was caught up in this kind of thing with talk of potential budget caps and and sort of two-tier f1 and everything that that made it very very difficult for them so there does seem to be some naivety here particularly with andretti after the announcement subsequently making comments about team greed etc Yes, uh, I am wary of um, accidentally painting Andretti as as the villain of the piece. I know that is how F1 teams in particular see him and their side of the the story certainly creates that image. Um, Their their response to how, um, how Andretti's gone about things, what he's said, what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. Make, does make it very clear or certainly gives off the implication that Andretti hasn't made enough interest there. I suspect if we could um, speak candidly to him about this, I would imagine Andretti would argue actually he has made every effort. You know, For example, he, he would see the Miami thing, for example, in a very different light to how F1 saw it. He would say see that as him saying, look, I tried. I, I went round to them. I, I tried to make my case. I tried to get them to support me. But basically... And I'm really wary of saying this because I I think there is a there is a, a European bias in in Formula One. Um, it is where the championship's heartland is in terms of races, teams, personnel, etc. And I'm wary of there being an element of European bias versus uh, stereotypes of American brashness. And I I do wonder if that has fed into the way that Andretti's been perceived or, or reacted to, whether he has been unfairly judged and, you know, a bit of a snap reaction to to, to him from, from certain people in, in Formula 1, I think that is possible. That being said, I, th- I think, based on everything that I've heard, that there is a feeling amongst F1 teams that Andretti just hasn't cottoned on to how this business should be conducted in Formula 1 and the idea being, I think, that if he had been a bit over-enthusiastic in the beginning and been very public and that kind of and rub people up the wrong way early on, that might be expected because there might just be a different... He might, he might just have a different way of working that is is just a little bit um, incompatible to begin with with the way F1 would prefer to do things. But I think their frustration is that that hasn't changed and it hasn't softened and... That, like I mentioned earlier, one suggestion that I've heard is that Andretti should ask to come to an F1 commission meeting and just make a formal proposal there, which I think is a great idea. I think it's a very sensible proposal. But 
has has he proactively thought of that? It doesn't seem so. The flip side of that is why you know have the team said that back to him? Has F one said that? Has has Ben Sulaim said that to him and just said, look, there's clearly some animosity here. You can't you can't just buddy up with one side. You you do need to get everybody on board. To um to paraphrase what one team boss uh said to me, why would new teams? Why would the current teams want to help someone? who has spent the last 18 months saying all these new teams are nasty, greedy, horrible people that are just trying to stitch me up and they're not trying to help me. Why, why would they be inclined to help someone that is saying that? So just be more collaborative. And I think that goes for both sides. F1 could perhaps be a bit more opening, uh, a bit more welcoming. The teams could be maybe be a little bit more proactive there and say, look, Michael, this isn't the best way to do it. But hey, why don't you come invite him to a commission meeting if you think he and General Motors are worth taking seriously. Take take that step. You there's there's give and take here on 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 both sides. But I do my I would say that there is a concern that if Andretti has aligned himself more with the FAA, I would hope that that is not based on a misunderstanding and a incorrect belief that the FAA are the only people that he needs to get on his side to get a an entry and that the FIA will be able to bulldoze it through because that isn't the case. As explained earlier, F1 do have a say in this and F1's opinion will be influenced by the teams. So this is much bigger than just trying to pick one side and hoping that's enough. It, it should just be more collaborative. And there is a lot of blame there, I think, on the Andretti side, if you want to apportion blame. But it isn't just him. There, there, there could be a bit more give and take. Yeah, and I think it's really important here to stress the value of having a proper process because it's a little bit like they've got a big wall with no ways through in it and they're saying well you should have just come to the door so well there is no obvious door so uh, trying to bridge over those gaps is is quite necessary because i think on paper there's a lot that's very positive about this andretti gm project so if that's the case it shouldn't be too difficult to get things a little bit more joined up so that there is that understanding the danger is that if it is part of a, a wider political battle that's what could be a very very credible bid loses out or is compromised because of that but I think on the Andretti side what I'd like to see them do is basically just as the teams almost want to call what they might see as the Andretti side bluff by saying right come to the F1 commission present what you've got Andretti now needs to do the same and say right we're going to call your bluff on having a proper entry process right so you tell us what we need to do, what is the process, expression of interest opened, what's the next step, we're satisfied, we tick all the boxes, Michael Andretti has said that, all we need to be given is the platform in which to show that, tell us how to do it, that would be the right approach and I think probably keeping quiet in the interim, waiting for that process to be launched and then going through it and making public comment when appropriate is the the better way of of doing it and my big concern is yeah a, a something that could on paper be great because there's a lot to like about this this project and uh, an Andretti team could be great for F1 if it's all the seams could be undermined by that. And I, I guess, Mark, coming back to almost where we started, this is what it's all about really, isn't it? We need to stop having these kind of shadowy things going on and people saying teams aren't doing the thing we haven't expressly said and we think we've done everything we should do and they're not letting it there being greedy. That there, there needs to be that point in the middle where everyone has to meet and actually tick some boxes and be tested against some tangible things. Otherwise, it starts to become this stupid back and forth that actually reflects badly on F1, the FIA, teams, everybody involved. 
Well, we will get there eventually because it, it, there has to be a decision at some point. Um, but yeah, it's a bit. Um, it, it, it could be a, a long, drawn out, and quite a, a tedious process with um, bad feeling um, being expressed on both sides. And you know, on on paper, it it sounds a, a really great, positive thing um, for Formula One. But the devil is in the detail, as we've always said. And without knowing the actual financial um, background to it, it's it's so so difficult to, to to call this. And I think in our last podcast, you you asked what do you think the likelihood is of of this going through, and we we settled it as sort of fifty fifty, and that was um, I, I still think it, it 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 it's hanging in the balance in in that way. Yeah, there's this fine line I think here between creating a strong and stable championship and creating a cartel that just runs everything and, and doesn't allow for any um, infiltration of um, of the Formula 1 grid. And I, I sympathise with the reaction that I see from a lot of fans that when you just look at it from a whether it's the headline numbers or just the basic bullet points of what's happened around the Andretti situation, for example. And it just, it does just look like greed and self-interest from F1, because as someone said to me on Twitter this morning, um, F1 said new teams need to pay $200 million. Andretti came back and said, yeah, we're happy to pay that. We, we, we want in, let us on the grid. Then at, in response to that, F1 and the team said, ah, well, $200 million and a manufacturer would be great. So Andressi went away, said, okay, yeah, we've got the 200 mil. Oh, and here you go. We've got uh, General Motors and Cadillac. That's great. And then F1's response to that was, yeah, no, that's 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 really good. But what we'd really like is $600 million and a manufacturer. And you, I, I, I sympathize why, that, why it is perceived that way because just in pure factual form, that is kind of how it has played out. But, I, I'm not taking a position on this um, either way. I, I, I see greed on uh, and self-interest on F1 side, but I also see some logic to it as well and understand why that has to be the case. Um, I don't know if this will torpedo the the efforts to increase the grid at this stage. If it did, I would hope it was for the right reasons and I would hope there's a lot of transparency around it. What would be a massive shame is if long-term it does block new teams coming in that that are legitimate contenders because if you've got someone that's willing to front up four, five, six hundred million dollars, maybe even more, plus all of the costs associated with starting a new team, they're obviously going to be around for a very long time. The intention would be around to be around for a very long time. And that would maximize their opportunity of being successful and contributing to F1. So that'd be great. How many organizations are out there with six fifty million to co- to commit to an expansion fee or anti-dilution fund or whatever. Plus, what do we reckon? I, I, I felt it was quite optimistic, but someone said to me yesterday that you'd need at least 100 million to start setting up an F1 team. My expectation would be that would be the very low end of the spectrum. What do you two think? That feels too low to me. A full staff, assuming you're setting up to operate at the cost cap with a full staff that that entails, that you're investing in the facilities, that you're investing in So that in the doesn't equipment. include... That doesn't include like so. It doesn't include like your running cost budget cap, because obviously, if you took over a team, you would have to pay that anyway. So I think this is purely from a from concept to 
being in a position to run a Formula One team in front of the costs, they're saying could be as little as $100 million to get a factory together, employ staff, that kind of thing. Personally, I don't think that that's, that would meet the criteria for a new team, as it should be. And that, again, it becomes a problem because the criteria are not very well set in stone, are they? Certainly, you shouldn't be able to just spend $100 million and then potentially have an asset that's worth vastly more than that. That's a stupid approach. You, you don't want that. So teams are right to be worried about that. And again, it, it, it just comes back to the, the same point, doesn't it? It's just down to Andretti to kind of lay their cards on the table and, and, and prove they've got it, which they might do according to the constituent elements. Yeah, but just to finish the point I was making before I accidentally veered into a tangent and asked you a question, um, is there anyone out there, are Andretti and General Motors willing to pay, let's say, $600 million to get on the grid or to you know to win over F1 and the teams plus pay 100, 200, 300 million to set the team up, whatever that would cost, then be paying $135 million a year to meet the budget cap, plus the costs on top of that that aren't included in the cap. You know, this is why I think someone like Toto Wolf said in Miami last year that the cost of a new team is around a billion dollars. Um, That's a huge, huge commitment to ask of anyone. F1 and the teams clearly think it's worthwhile asking that commitment because of the shape that the championship's in and where it's going. But could that be prohibitive to new entrants? Does that mean that unless you're part of the party already, you are just excluded because it's prohibitively expensive to get involved? That is what I think we may start to get the answers to through this process. Yeah, I think you're right. It will show how likely it is for someone to to meet those criteria. But the criteria should be very, very difficult. They, They have to be. Otherwise, you will get chances coming in. So that's that's the fine balance. The question for me is whether F1 as a collective, I'm talking as a whole, including the FIA and the teams, gets that balance right. It should be very, very difficult to get in, but it just shouldn't be impossible. And yeah, if everything is as it looks like with the Andretti GM project, then I think they should be able to prove that they can... Uh, can meet those levels but yeah it it needs it needs a firm process it needs the goalposts to not just be firmly expressed but also appear to be firmly set so that people on the outside know that that's not something unreasonable going on on here and i think the the vagueness in the process has caused quite a lot of these problems so that's something they actually definitely have to get sorted through this process and certainly when it comes to the 26 Concorde, there needs to be a much, much better plan for how to deal with aspiring new entrants. Don't shut the door, but don't make it too easy to get in. And I think all F1 fans, and even F1 as a whole, a proper Andretti Cadillac GM team that's investing, that's set up well, could be very, very good for F1 and really could help the growth in the US, given that there is a desire to make it be seen and really pushed as an American team in the way that, say, Haas hasn't been. So there's a lot of there's a lot of possible big positives uh, to this, and this is going to play out over the, the coming months and perhaps even longer. So this isn't just about a new team. It's about a battle between FIA and F1 and getting something in place that actually works for the long term for everyone. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell, Malm and Mark Hughes for your insight. Head to theracecom and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there on the Andretti bid and everything else going on in the world of F1. Check out some of our other podcasts, including the Race F1 podcast, Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, and also have a look at our YouTube channel. Well, there's certainly been plenty going on in these early days of the new year, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. 
The Athletic.